as Benji was um, giving opportunity for us to be thankful to the Lord, as um, I was a little slow and uh, in getting up, but you know I was thinking, I'm sure all of us from time to time pray that the Lord would use us for His glory. It's a pretty common statement, words to that effect. And of course, sometimes when the Lord does use us in specific ways, we are uncomfortable or may have wished it never happened. And, um, and over the many years, there have been opportunities for me to be used of the Lord, I believe. And some of those opportunities over the years, I feel a little uncomfortable and kind of wish that they would go away or become someone else's problem or issue or something. I've repented of that. I've had to. But I'm sure I'm no different than you. Well, today we're going to be reading about the Apostle Paul. He had lots of issues. He had heaps of opportunity to serve the Lord. He had heaps of circumstances that came into his life that no doubt he wished would go away or that wouldn't be his or that would be someone else's. And we're going to see how this man responds to them today so that we can learn from them. And we can be thankful to God for even those difficult circumstances that come into our lives where God is wanting and taking us up on our prayers to be used of him. So let us turn to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Um, I haven't got, there we are. Just before we start, you'll see passing the baton is a familiar little text owing to our Commonwealth Games coming to an end or at an end. And um, this is what Timothy is doing in the second epistle. He's passing the baton. And uh, we'll hear more about that as we get into this text. But just let's read the verses first and then we'll have a look at, um, at what this is all about. First Timothy, second Timothy, sorry. Second Timothy. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I call your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Verse 5, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Now, before we dig into the text that we have read this morning, I believe some historic background to the second letter 
that Paul writes to Timothy will help us understand Paul's many instructions that he gives to this younger son in the faith, Timothy, and the church at Ephesus, where Timothy still was. You see, when Paul wrote his first letter that we have just completed last Sunday, actually he wrote Timothy and Titus at the same time, or in and around about. He was a free man then. And it seems that he wrote those two letters during his short space of release from his first imprisonment. And if you want to read about that first imprisonment, you need to go to Acts and begin at chapter 26 and through to the end of 30. And it seems he wrote First Timothy and Titus after that release from his first imprisonment. Well, when he writes the second letter... To Timothy, it's five to six years later. And things had changed drastically for the Apostle Paul. Unlike his first imprisonment, where he enjoyed certain freedoms, as you will remember reading the text, he was allowed visitors and he was allowed people to come in and no doubt bring him foods that he liked, etc., etc., Here he was in dire straits in AD 66. He was in chains, we read in chapter 1, verse 16 of the second letter. He was in a Roman prison now, which was a dank, low-lit dungeon awaiting his sentence of execution. But worse than that, during his first imprisonment, as I said, people were free to come and go and and minister to his needs. But on this occasion, he records that all in Asia Minor had deserted him. Even during his first trial, coming up to this imprisonment, he said no one supported him. The only ones who had the courage to stay with the apostle on this occasion was a man called Onesphorus who refreshed him we see in verse 16 of chapter 1 and of course Luke who was with him chapter 4 verse 16 all the rest had deserted him but you know what Paul forgave these cowardly defectors by saying in chapter 4 verse 16 may it not be counted against them But folks, how much that must have grieved his heart to be forsaken by those whom he had served and whom he loved so much. To many of these deserters, he was their spiritual father. That is, he had led them to the Lord. He had taught them, he had nurtured them in the faith. But the fear of man... And the fear of the political scene of the day had them desert the apostle in his great hour of need. Because you see, just a couple of years earlier, approximately AD 64, it seems that Mad Nero, I called him, he was the ruler of Rome at the time, and in his crazed psychological state, He ordered his own city, Rome, to be set on fire. Some record that he had such a a, a 
imbalanced passion for architecture, etc., that he decided that he wanted Rome to be built anew according to his design, and so he set it alight. This is a quote by a man called Tacticus, who was a Roman historian living at the time. This is what he said. But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor, and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the, the sinister, sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order by Nero. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. End quote. And so as a result, to cover up his own guilt and maybe the pointing fingers at him, Mad Nero went on the rampage once again. And so he ordered Christians to be tortured. This despised bunch of people within his realm, he ordered them to be tortured. He ordered them to be burned and thrown to wild beasts at the gladiator's ring. They became victims for Roman entertainment. It's also recorded that he often lit the streets, literally lit the streets and his own garden parties with the burning carcasses of Christian human torches. Now this is the political backdrop. This is the scene. The threat that was hanging over everyone who called on the name of the Lord. And it was during all this persecution and turmoil for the church at Rome that the Apostle Paul is imprisoned and awaits his execution. And in this extreme hour, the aged Apostle, of course, recognized that his earthly life was coming to an end. And so he writes the second letter to Timothy. Hence, the second letter to Timothy is essentially Paul's last words. So what was on Paul's mind? So what does he say? What does he do? What does he write? The apostle could have acted and reacted in many ways, right? The first whole chapter could have been a series of legitimate complaints, surely. Complaints like, how come that I have served the Lord, I've given my life to Him, and here I am waiting death unjustly at the hand of a bunch of pagans. He could have said that. Or he could have had a whole chorus of, woe is me. That could have been the case. It could have been about how the church had failed him and how Christians who were cowardly had deserted him in this crucial hour. But that's not how it went down with the Apostle Paul, was it? For we see that the Apostle Paul, what did he do? He looked past his own dire circumstances to express concern for the churches and specifically for young Timothy. Paul wanted to use his last words to encourage Timothy, 
to inspire him, to motivate him, to get him up and get going. He wanted to do that for all believers, to persevere in the faith. 2 Timothy 2, uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 14. And he wanted all believers to be involved in proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 and verse 2 of this letter. So it's with this background that the apostle now writes this letter to Timothy, still the pastor, by the way, at the church at Ephesus. And by the way, the church at Ephesus had not improved since the first letter that he wrote the first letter five or six years earlier. It was because of the inroads of bad theology and even Timothy himself, to some extent, like all the rest, had become weaker and less effective as false teaching and ungodly behavior and persecution increased. In other words, things were not super healthy in the church at Ephesus. So where does Paul begin? What does he say? What does he remind Timothy and the church there and us here? Does he berate them for their slackness? Does he immediately point out their faults? No. He begins where every believer should begin who wants to counsel and disciple another believer who is struggling. That's where he begins. He begins his, this letter to Timothy by motivating and encouraging Timothy and the whole church. He leaves his primary instruction from verse 6 on of this chapter onward. The first five verses are taken up with encouraging and motivating this young man and for all his readers. Now, even though these are five verses are personal comments to Timothy, what they do is also they reflect principles that are vital for anyone who is discipling another. And we all should be discipling others, by the way. We all should be encouraging one another to some extent in the Lord. Whether a parent or whether a grandparent or whether a Sunday school teacher, or a counsellor, or anyone who is helping another to grow in the faith and the maturity of the Lord. This section holds some valuable principles for us to learn from. And the first one is, my battery's gone in this, guys, so could you flick it over? The first one says, encourage with authority, confidence, and selflessness. We see this is in verse 1 and 2. As I said, these first five verses are addressed to Timothy and he was a man who was really under the pump mentally and spiritually as the pastor at Ephesus. And so Paul sets out not to remind him of his pastoral responsibilities of which he had a whole heap and that begins at verse 6. But what he does is he encourages and motivates Timothy. How does he do that? He does that by first calling attention to the authority that Paul has in Timothy's life. Did you get that? Some people don't like authority. We live in an age these days where authority is down. Whether it's in marriages, whether it's in families, whether it's in society, authority is something that is in many ways squelched. But not in this situation. Paul says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus 
to Timothy, my beloved son. Now, I don't know about you, but being addressed by such a person who could rightfully claim this kind of authority would certainly not leave me downcast. It would certainly leave me in an opposite frame of mind. It would leave me buzzing and somewhat reverently fearful, don't you think? You see, to be reminded like Timothy was, even though he and Paul were like a father and son and had worked together and were very intimate with one another, etc., on that relationship, even though that was the case, Paul reminded Timothy that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This is who is writing to you, Timothy. And that would have been soul-stirring to Timothy to say the least. You see what Paul is doing here? He doesn't dither around. He doesn't come in and say, okay, let's just cool and chill out and we just, we're all equal here. We're, just, we're on the same level here. No, no. He doesn't go in like that. He reminds Timothy that despite their close relationship, Paul ranked way above Timothy in spiritual authority. Why? Because God, Paul was who? Paul was God's mouthpiece. And now he was writing to him in that capacity and he's saying, Timothy, listen up. I'm speaking to you on behalf of God. That's authority. You don't mess around when someone speaks to you without authority. And God speaks to us through his word, through this authority, through the likes of myself and other preachers and teachers here. This principle of authority to motivate another is needed, folks. This is absolutely needed. Not only in the church, but in every sphere of society that we have today. You see, no matter how close and relational Paul and Timothy were, it did not exclude Paul's spiritual authority in Timothy's life. Just like a love relationship between parents as we have here and their children that does not and should not ever, ever exclude authority over their children. But we see that happening a lot today, don't we? Oh, I love my children, but you know, we're just buddies. We're mates. Pastors, parents, teachers have been all given authority over their children and over people to encourage and motivate those whom God has put in our charge. So mums and dads here today, get this, you are not your children's friends. Okay? You are not your children's friends. You are their parents' You're not their mates. You are their parents. You are their authority. And might I say that any parent's love for their children that excludes proper parental authority is doomed to family failure and tragedy. Just like a business, if you want to look at the other angle, just like a business... If there is a failure by employees to recognize the authority of the employers that have over them, that business is in big trouble. Big trouble. So we need authority in our lives, but we also need 
authority in others' lives and to show that on behalf of God. But also notice that it is not the only authority that Paul encourages Timothy with. He also motivates him with confidence. Here is Paul in prison, right? He's awaiting death. Now just imagine that. Just put that in your minds. And here he is. He's oozing with confidence. Oozing with it. Not self-confidence. He's not confident in himself, but he's confident in God. What does he point out in this passage to express this confidence, his confidence? He points to God's will and God's promise. You see that? Notice he calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the will of God. So what Paul is saying here is he's confident that the same God who by his own sovereign will chose him for salvation and to be the preacher of the gospel is the same God who has him in this stinking low-lit prison right now. No circumstances in Paul's life dampened his confidence in God. You see, folks, this confidence that Paul had in his sovereign promise-keeping God I'm sure would have struck a chord with Timothy. And why is that? Simply this. The same promise-keeping God who chose Paul had also chosen him for salvation and ministry and service. And that would have been encouraging and motivating truth for Timothy, I am sure. Paul's confidence in God was contagious. And you know what? Your confidence in God can be and should be contagious. Paul passed that on to Timothy to encourage him. You know, I wonder if we do this, folks. I wonder if we do this. Do you express to others your confidence in God simply because of who God is and what He's done and because of the promises of eternal life in Christ Jesus? I wonder if you express and show off that confidence. Not in yourself, but confidence in God. Parents, Sunday school teachers, disciples, grandparents, do we do this enough? Those under our care so need this kind of confidence in God passed on to them, like a baton, especially in these dark days in which we live, folks especially in these days when we have so many broken hearts, so many broken homes. We have brokenness through death and sickness and relational disaster. People need the confidence of God passed on to them to encourage and motivate them. We all need to be encouraged and to have confidence in the Lord. You know what? Otherwise this will happen the circumstances of life will overtake us and consume us. But Paul, though languishing in a damp, dark dungeon, is not finished with his opening encouragement comments to Timothy. He extends it in verse 2 with what we might see as a personal Pauline tagline, I've called it. You know, we read this kind of thing all the time through Paul's epistles. But what he says here is more than just a tagline. He says, To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So here we see the Apostle Paul, although in spiritual authority over Timothy, he does not exclude his love and intimacy for Timothy. And you know what? As dads, we can be great leaders of our families, can't we? We can be great leaders of our family. We're all in the home, our wives, our children. They have a, a right measure of respect for us and for our authority that's been given us by God. But let me say this, authority without genuine love and intimacy like the Apostle Paul has expressed here, love without genuine love and love without, by authority without genuine love and intimacy is far from what God intended. It misses the mark. Paul here motivates Timothy by his sacrificial, his selfless love that is now expressed for Timothy. And these were not just mere words either, by the way. Words come cheap. They really do. But these were genuine words from Timothy that had expressed a whole lifelong of love toward Timothy by the apostle. Paul could have said this, Timothy, I want you to pray that God will show me some grace and mercy so that I might have peace from this unbearable circumstance that I am in. He could have asked for prayer. But no, you see, Paul looks past his own circumstances and he selflessly concerns himself for the spiritual well-being of his son in the faith. He longed that Timothy would grow in undeserved grace. That's what he longed for. He longed that he would grow in this grace that God had, had saved him by and justified him by. He longed that that would become the base whereby Timothy would grow in leaps and bounds toward becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. He longed that Timothy would continue to value and live in the shelter also of God's abundant mercy that was bestowed upon him. And he also longed that Timothy would increasingly know that inner peace that God's grace and mercy produces freely and gives to a person who comes to the Lord. That's what, Tim, that's what Paul longed for Timothy. My dear people, to truly motivate and encourage those under our care and authority, we must be genuine in our selfless love. We must be such to them that they experience our genuine, heartfelt love. For this is a powerful incentive for them to love others in the same way. Our second point is encouraged with gratitude, prayer and affection. See this in verses 3 and 4. And in this section we see three more principles for us to take note of how Paul encourages Timothy. The first one is seen in gratitude that Paul expresses for Timothy. Once again, think of Paul's horrific circumstances, and yet here he is thanking God for the input Timothy has had into his life. Now think about that. How profoundly this must have affected Timothy. He knew of Paul's dire situation, yet here he is expressing gratitude to God for him. He was not expressing his bitterness against the authorities or of his brethren who had deserted him, no. 
What does he do? He thanks God for Timothy. I really believe we lack in this area, folks. We are thankful to one another, absolutely, yes. But do we genuinely, with a clear, sincere conscience, like Paul had, thank God for others and then go and tell them about it? I wonder if we do that enough. I don't believe we do. On a number of occasions over the years, I've had letters expressing and also verbally words spoken to me of how people are thankful to God for the input I have had into their lives. And you might say, oh, yes, but you're the pastor, you're up there every Sunday, you're dear, of course you have input. It's not the only way to have input in a person's life. There are many ways, myriads of ways. And one of the responses that happened to me that caused me when someone says something like that to me, it humbles me, yes, it's humbling. You may even feel a little bit embarrassed, but that's okay. You can thank, the God, thank God for the person or the persons who have spoken to you. But you know what? It also elicits another response from me. And I believe it would elicit a response from you as well. And that is encouragement and motivation to serve and to teach and to minister people. You see, it inspires you, it motivates you. When some person comes and tells, look, I had the joy and privilege of really bringing you before God's throne of grace this week and I prayed specifically for this and this and this. What does it do? You say, ah, yeah, give you 20 cents and say, see if I care. No, 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 that would, that would be far from what you would say. It humbles you and motivates you and encourages you to continue on and to soldier on. You see, the problem is we're so focused on the negatives of people's lives. And we all have them, by the way. That we fail to value how God has blessed us through them. It does us some good to do that, you know, get our eyes off ourselves. And I can see every one of you here this morning. And every single one of you are different. And every single one of you, I can say, I can thank God for the input that you have had into my life. Some have been larger and some have been smaller, but that's okay. I can still see the aspects where God has used you to bless me. Get our eyes off ourselves and start looking at others through God's eyes. Well, Paul encouraged Timothy by telling him he was thankful to God for him. And he also motivated Timothy by reminding him how he prayed for him. See that? Constantly, night and day. Now, we often say this to other folk. Oh, I'll pray for you. I've been praying for you. And that's a good thing to do for another. And it's also a good and right thing to share it with a person that you've been praying for. There have been many occasions where there would have been many occasions where Paul and Timothy prayed for one another together. I am positive and sure about that. And that in itself is an awesome encouragement. 
To have someone just come and say, hey, look, I'd love to be able to pray with you. You can just go aside and in the quietness of the room or whatever and have a word of prayer with you. That's a tremendous encouragement. But here, they were, Timothy and Paul, worlds apart, and Timothy here is still being reminded that Paul never forgets him, and he constantly prays for his well-being. When someone tells me they've been praying for me, it does something to me, as I'm sure it did to Timothy, and I hope to you as well. You see, it not only encourages you, but you know what else it does? Or it should do? It holds you accountable. It holds you accountable. To be held up before God's throne of grace by the prayers of fellow saints motivates and encourages one to be faithful in their work with, work with the Lord. It may be some sin that you've been delving in and you have someone to come and tell you, look, I've already been praying and it's a personal thing between you and her or her, you, uh, both the guys or whatever it may be and, and I've been praying for the specific area that you are weak in, brother, and I'll continue to pray. It holds you accountable not to go down that road, right? holds you accountable and causes you to put your hand to the plough and, and to go the extra mile when you know that your name and your circumstances have been made known to the throne of heaven. We all need motivation to be diligent in our walk with the Lord, I am sure. So can I say pray and tell for the mutual encouragement of fellow believers. We need to do that. Then we see that Paul is not slow to show his affection to Timothy. This is an important principle to learn. An important principle to learn. Especially towards those that we may be discipling. Especially towards those who are in our home where you are leader and head of the home in whatever capacity whether you're an older brother and you have siblings that are younger than you, you, no one gets off the hook here, whether you're a Sunday school teacher or a home group leader or, or, or whatever. The principle is to show our love by genuinely expressing our affection to them. Now, I'm not talking about here giving everyone a great big kiss. Mind you, there's nothing wrong with a holy kiss. Okay? That's actually... Encouraged in Scripture. You know, just like any family, natural family, earthly family, flourishes and is strengthened by genuine affection shown, so do brothers and sisters in the Lord. Paul expresses this genuine affection to Timothy here and he says, Timothy, I long to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. You see, Tim, Paul yearned for Timothy's company. This kind, of, this kind of affection is expressed also when Paul met the Ephesian elders on the beach that day, remember? And Timothy, no doubt, would have been there. This was the last time. And let me read that for you and what happened. And you can gauge and gather some of the affection that was going down there, both by Paul and the elders that met him. And when he had said these things, for Acts 20, 36, 38, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the words that he had spoken. 
that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. Dear friends, there's no room for coldness and aloofness among believers. Certainly not, and certainly not those who are among we're trying to encourage and disciple. No room for lone rangers, as it were. I even heard people, well, I don't like mixing with people, and so they, off. There's no room for that. How can you show your affection and love when you come and off? No room for that. Our genuine love in Christ needs to be expressed for one another appropriately, yet affectionately, because that encourages one another, encourages us in the Lord. It helps bind up broken and weakened hearts. It motivates togetherness and unity. And most of all, when genuinely expressed our affection, you know what it does? It expresses God's love to others. And finally, we see that Paul, and our last one, encouraged with affirmation. We see this in verse 5. In this last verse for our consideration today, we see that Paul motivates Timothy with some personal words about himself and his family. That is, Timothy and his family. Paul doesn't talk about himself. Not in these introduction five verses. But one of the biggest introductions of all Paul's epistles. Now here he was in prison. I'm sure I would have jammed a moan or a complaint in there about myself. But no, not Paul. The whole first five, five verses was about Timothy. And so here was Paul chained in this dank hole in the Roman dungeon awaiting his execution. And he reminisces. That's what you do, right? So what does he recall to mind? He recalls this about Timothy, the sincere faith within you which dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Now as you look at this, we see that Paul is finishing off his motivational intro, can I call it, with a big affirmation strike. If you're wondering what that means, let me illustrate it to you. You know how I love fishing. And if you went fishing with me, you would soon discover that I strike big. Okay? I'm a big striker. And uh, that is, when my rod and line are in the water and there's bait on the hook, of course, uh, whether it's a lure or, or whatever, of some description, and, and I notice by the, the, the little jigging or the little tremors through the line that there is a fish of some description that is more than interested in my bait. But it's not hooked yet. It's not hooked. So what you do when the time is right is you strike to make sure the hook is well embedded in the mouth of the fish, of the fish so you've got tea for tonight. Well, Paul is making sure with his last big strike that Timothy is soundly hooked with affirmation of his faith. This affirmation begins with Paul's conviction that Timothy's faith is sincere. Do you see that? It's a sincere faith. It's not just a head knowledge. It's not something that you signed a card. It was a sincere faith. That means there's no holes in it. It's authentic. It's proven itself. 
In other words, Timothy, Paul says, I I know your faith in Jesus Christ is genuine with no pretense at all. There's no deceit on your part. Therefore, you have a responsibility to continue in this faith. How it is that when the going gets tough, we often want to give up, right? Our faith begins to flounder when the going gets tough. But Paul Paul goes on to say, but that's not all, Timothy. That's not all. The same genuine faith was in your grandma and also in your mother. You see that big strike on Timothy's heart being well embedded? Now, folks, if you really want to touch a struggling believer's heart or prick their conscience, you remind them about their personal faith in Jesus Christ, then really strike big, if applicable, if applicable, you remind them about their godly heritage. Now, some of us here haven't got a godly heritage. Praise the Lord that God saved you. You're like a first-generation Christian. I myself can thank God for a godly heritage. As a matter of fact, one of the big motivations that God has used in my life is the godly heritage that I have. My mum and dad were born again. They loved the Lord and they, and they strove with all their endeavors to teach us the ways of the Lord. As many of you can here today. But you know what? With privilege, with privilege always comes responsibility. And my godly heritage has motivated me in many ways to serve and live the Lord because the Lord who gives much, much is required of him. And Timothy was in the same circumstance. He was going to be held accountable to God for his responsibility to his godly heritage. Paul never had that. To the same extent, oh yes, he was brought up a Jew and as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, but he never had the godly heritage like Timothy had. Just a little footnote here, parents, especially mothers, never ever underestimate what you are implanting in the lives of the children that God has given you. Many a woman have been God's instruments to win their children to Christ and oftentimes even their unsaved husbands as well. May God grant that you follow in the line of Lois and Eunice. So here is Paul with his final encouragement to struggling Timothy, a younger man in the faith. He affirms to him his sincere faith that was passed down through his grandma and then through his mum, and which now abides in him as well. And don't get me wrong here, and don't get the text wrong. Just because your parents are Christians doesn't mean to say that you are. Being a Christian is not a genetic thing. Being a Christian is a personal dealing of faith and trust between an individual and God himself. All my children are not believers because... Thou may and myself are believers. They are believers because they came to a time in their life and they understood that they were on a lost road to eternity and so they personally themselves bowed the knee, bowed the heart and asked the Lord to forgive their sins and to 
make themselves right with God. That's what needs to happen. And then they can thank God for their godly heritage. I want to encourage and motivate each and every one here this morning to press forward. To reach for the high mark of God's calling. To run the race that is set before each one of us. And to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But all that can only begin. It can only begin and continue if we truly and personally have faith in the person of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And can I ask the question, is he your personal saviour? Can I or anyone here come to you with confidence and affirm and remind you of your faith in Christ? In other words, if there is no real faith, we cannot be motivated to grow and flourish in the true faith. All we have is religion. And religious by itself amounts to nothing. May we all not only be encouraged, may we all learn to encourage others by seeing how Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to Timothy in this five-verse introduction, shall we pray.